This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Lori Kranz is known in her circle of friends and fellow gardeners of Southern California as Gardening Lori. Her work under the name of Edible Gardens LA is part garden design, part school gardening, part gardening coach and mentor, and all gardening evangelist and advocate. Her new book, A Garden Can Be Anywhere, offers advice, inspiration, instruction, and encouragement good for all gardeners everywhere. She writes, quote, The garden is not isolated from nature. It's part of it. Other plants, weeds, animals, and even people are going to be in it. Each garden is extraordinarily personal. Each garden is a collaboration between a person or people and a unique piece of land, end quote. As spring matures fully into summer, for some reason, the edible garden is now in full spotlight view in many gardens. Lori joins us today remotely from her L.A. area canyon home and garden to share more about how to make the most of our own personal edible garden collaborations. Welcome, Lori. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Well, Describe more visually, perhaps, what it is you do every day and what your personal relationship, both, you know, in your home garden and in your work gardens, what do you do? What does that look like? What does that feel like? Every day, I am in many gardens. So I work with clients to help them develop their own relationship to the land they live on and to have a constant communication with that piece of land. So the entry point that I find myself in most of the time is creating edible landscapes and vegetable gardens for clients, for schools, museums. And I really love what I do because introducing people, um, sometimes for the first time, and sometimes to revisit a part of their life, to open up this door to a garden again. Um, Maybe they experienced something like that as a child with a grandparent, Mm -hmm. whomever. It's, It's really helping people engage with the natural world around them. So I create these gardens, and then I turn them over to the client and help guide them through the natural process of starting a vegetable that they're going to eat from a seed, intending to it and watching it grow and helping it flourish and then ultimately harvesting it and um, putting it in their harvest basket to create something beautiful from their own garden. Yeah. Now we're going to get into this relationship that you build with people and how you work is sort of, you're almost like a garden doula. That's how I I sometimes think of you after reading the book in terms of you help these people birth a garden and then you help them to learn how to take care of it and kind of go. That at least is the sense I get from Mm -hmm. the book. But we're going to dig into that much more deeply in a minute. You brought up a couple of things that you encourage and help your clients with. And that is, you know, sometimes introducing them to things and sometimes tapping into something that was there from their childhood. And so I want to get that kind of information from you. Like, 
share with us your earliest influences, your, you know, the earliest people and places and plants that grew you into a person that would want to take this on as their life's work, Lori? I'll tell you, um, it was the house I grew up in had this grassy area in back. I grew up back east. And um, the where the lawn ended, there were woods. And my sister and I would end up playing in the woods for hours. We just had to be back for dinner. <laughs> so we created a whole world in those woods where I remember there were red berry shrubs and skunk cabbage, mm-hmm. sometimes a little stream running through. And we'd have friends over and we'd bring them into our magical world we felt we created. Um, of course, it was all nature's work. And we just got to uh, play a role in it. And um, I think that is my strongest first memory of trees and plants and really being aware of them surrounding me in that really beautiful feeling that they left me with. And then at some point, just right before the wood started was this great sunny patch. And my dad uh, turned over the soil in that area and put in a small vegetable patch. And I would sit there with him and plant some sunflower seeds and help harvest tomatoes and watermelons crawling all over. (laughs) And I loved spending that time with my father. He was busy and he worked in an office. So I saw him mostly in the evening, but on weekends or holidays, I would find him down in the garden patch. And that's where some of my happiest memories are with my own father. Yeah. That's such a great image and story. And it I feel like I can feel its spirit in so many of the test gardens you walk us through in the book and the way you interact with your clients when you're first trying to find a space for their gardens. And that little patch of sunlight and sitting on the ground really comes to play in a lot of what comes in the book. So... You grew up back east. What brought you to California? And from there, did you always know you wanted to work in plants and garden kind of related things? Or did that come as a a more circuitous evolution? If you had told me 20 years ago that I would spend six days a week all day in gardens, I would have thought, no, no, you've got you're wrong. You've got the wrong person. I never saw this coming. I'm a late bloomer. I did not find this when I was in my 20s. So I feel like it found me at mm. a point where I was really open and ready to receive yeah. this world. Um, I moved to Los Angeles from New York City. I have been in a band for years called Snow and Voices, put out records, we toured. My work was really a lot of it, unless we were recording, it was about traveling. I was never in one place that long. Hmm. And now I found myself in a place where every garden is like a child. I can't leave them. So (laughs) I actually have gone, I went from one point in my life where I was traveling all the time to this next part of my life where 
it's really hard to travel and leave the gardens. Mm. And the path was unexpected. I was making music and I had my first child. And when he started school, I had to volunteer for something. And I looked down the list of all the possibilities that parents could volunteer for. And I saw gardening. And I thought, I remembered gardening with my dad. And I thought, I can have this experience with my own child. Mm. And I signed right up for it. And then the floodgates opened because I signed up for it. And I immediately was overwhelmed with the excitement of putting a seed in the soil and watching it sprout. I think it just brought me right back to my childhood and the joy in that. And then I got to garden with all these children who saw the joy in that too. And it was infectious. And then I went to the libraries. I took out every book I could possibly find on gardening. I read everything. I looked at every photo. I, you know, found things that really drew me in, some things that did not draw me in. And I think I started to formulate my own ideas of what I wanted a garden to be from research and then from working in that school garden and seeing things grow and how they grew and what worked. And then from there, I kind of developed my own rhythm. I started a garden at my own home mm -hmm. and then I had another child and he started school and they didn't have a school garden at his school. So I asked them, would you like me to start a gardening program? And they said, we'd love it. So we built garden beds. I still didn't really have a business doing this. I just loved this. And yeah. it had been a few years. And then I started that garden and it was wonderful. And everyone got involved. Parents wanted to volunteer. And it was such a wonderful experience to start it from the ground up. And then people, parents would say, oh, will you help me with a garden at my house? Mm. And so I did. And then they would have friends over and the friends would say, can you give me Lori's number? And it all started from there. Yeah. And so just out of random curiosity, can you say in the many years you've been doing this now, how many gardens you have helped create? Do you have oh a rough gosh. number? I definitely think I can safely say a hundred. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I have clients I've had since the day I've started, and I'm still in their gardens mm -hmm. with them. Many clients were in the garden together. So mm -hmm. we schedule a time where I come and we spend time. Sometimes it's wonderful. Someone will bring out lunch. Oh, I just made lunch for us and bring it out to the garden. And we garden and we talk and we eat. And some of my closest friends now uh, started off as people I helped to build a garden with. It's a very personal experience. Uh -huh. So yeah. I never wanted to do volume. Yeah. I always just wanted it to be very personal. So people would say to me, why don't you hire a bunch of people and grow your business? But I never wanted to manage people. I wanted to just be in gardens. Yeah. So I've built my Edible Gardens LA that way, where I'm the person who shows up at your door. Yep. And I also feel like if you're not in your garden, it's not your garden. It changes every day. Yep. Every day is different in the garden. Yesterday, I went into a garden and I'd been waiting and waiting. I planted the seeds here in Southern California. We plant poppy seeds 
it Halloween to say New Year's. And then they grow and grow and grow and they explode. The more exotic (laughs) poppies explode right now. And I walked into this garden. I had seen the heads forming, forming, getting bigger. They're very tall, beautiful, reaching for the sky poppies. And yesterday I walked into a garden and it had opened and it was the most beautiful poppy I've ever seen. And it wasn't like that last week. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, I love to see the fruits of all of our labor, just all of us, it teaches you patience, the garden, it teaches you all of these things. And then you walk in and it's, it's just shifted. So if I always felt like if I'm not planting those seeds and tending that and growing that soil, then it's not an edible gardens, LA garden. So I do less gardens and I give them a lot of attention. Yeah. And I love this structure in which you are working with the the homeowner. So it's their garden too. But sometimes, and I think in this, you know, busy day and age, and you remember when, when you're kids were little or, you know, you're building your business, it's hard to find the time and give yourself the permission to get out in your garden. So having someone there to help and teach and support and collaborate with makes you make the time. It makes you see that time as more important and it gets on the priority list, which is, you know, is one of the hardest things I think for a lot of gardeners. And this also idea that you are present for and you are witness to this constant dynamic of the space, that's what gets us as gardeners, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a great gardener or an ungreat gardener, just a happy gardener. It's that constant shifting that is so just you fall in love with it every season, every day. and You do. And I try to help clients find a space in their life for it. And maybe it's a space they didn't expect they would have time-wise. I often say, you know, that morning cup of coffee or tea or whatever, go outside and have it in your garden. Yeah. What a way to start the day. Yeah. Observe life outside, observe nature at that hour, or you've had a really difficult day or a great day or just a regular day. But end the day, take a glass of wine out to the garden, sit there, do your work then. It doesn't feel like, oh, my garden chores. It feels like such a pleasure. So I just try to shift the perspective. You know, people will say, well, how often do I need to be in my garden? And I try (laughs) to shift that to you're going to want to be in your garden every day. Yeah. And the the other concept that I I wanted to touch on before I, I move on is this idea of you being there as basically the sole other person, that you don't have this crew of people who come in and sort of unfold a garden like it was, you know, a rolled up carpet in the closet, um, but that it is this craftsman and relational fine gardening experience, which for them to see that kind of craftsmanship from a single plantswoman in direct contact with the earth versus a big crew that comes in and puts it in in a short amount of time and then rolls out, it sets a standard and a model for the the relationship and dialogue they're going to want to have with the garden you create at this sort of human scale and human pace. Well, 
That's my hope. Mm -hmm. And I love how you phrased that. I just couldn't see for me personally doing it any other way. Mm -hmm. And I do hope it gives people that feeling of this is a really intimate experience. Gardening is so intimate and unique and no two gardens are the same. Even if we all choose the same exact vegetables and flowers we're going to plant in our beds, none of them will look the same. They will all be a unique expression of the person whose garden it is. And it's an artistic endeavor. I think it's vital for our health and well-being to have this constant dialogue with nature. We're speaking with Lori Kranz, creator of Edible Gardens LA and author of A Garden Can Be Anywhere, Creating Bountiful and Beautiful Edible Gardens. The book is out this year from Abrams Books. We'll be right back with Lori for more of her empowering edible garden life journey. Stay with us. Hey there. As June comes to a close and we prepare to enter July, I hope you are all planning and making space for time in your own gardens or on your own nature trails this summer. It's important. It is as much a physical necessity as food and water, sleep and exercise, as hugs from the people we love. These things sustain us. You know they do. Make time for them. For all of you sustaining donors of $10 or more each month to Cultivating Place, you sustain us. As such, I really hope you're enjoying the monthly Garden Life Love Letters, the short audio clips I send out on the 15th of each month, gleaning some small piece of story, advice, history, or meaning to share with you. And I hope these add a little sustenance to your mid-months. This past 15th, the Garden Life Love Letter was a short clip with Dr. Raymond Barnett, and his studies into both ancient Taoism and the worldview of John Muir. I hope those of you that received the bonus clicked through to listen and that it lifted you for the remainder of the day, maybe even the whole week. It's my way of saying an extra thank you for your support. Now, back to our conversation with Lori Kranz, builder of Edible Gardens LA and author of A Garden Can Be Anywhere. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. When we left off, Lori was sharing with us her thoughts on how intimate creating, planting, and caring for a garden can be. Her very personal, single-woman approach to planning and installing a garden with her clients, be they schools or chefs or DJs, sets a model and standard for the pace at which gardens should be created. Over time, with attention and care. We're back to hear more about how our gardens literally grow us from the scent of onions coming out of the garden soil to preparing food you've grown yourself and how powerfully this teaches you more about you. Well, there's nothing like pulling that first carrot you grew of the season (laughs) and then you just wash it off under the hose and eat it fresh from the soil. So sweet. It's so sweet. It's so rewarding. And it makes you feel, I did this. Yeah. 
you know, I can do this. It's so empowering. From the kids in the school gardens to any of us adults, it is one of the most empowering things we can do is to grow our own food and vital. And I feel, you know, we've been traveling on the book tour and we were in Brooklyn recently and we're going back again and New York City and, you know, places that people don't necessarily expect to find gardens. But I feel that each of us, no matter where we live, can be growing something that we eat, even if it's a pot of basil on the windowsill. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's important for the earth and it's important for the whole food chain, but it's also important for us in our journey and and to feel empowered and to feel that you can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the smell, I mean... I also find that when people get into the garden, they two things happen with our sense of smell. One is it is so intoxicating cutting fresh herbs and you can't believe or pulling onions from the soil and not expecting the pleasure of the smell of onions with the soil clinging to them. Mm-hmm. It's actually one of my favorite smells or where I'm where I'm cutting basil or thyme or lemon verbena or whatever. In the gardens, some of the gardens are in front yards and people walking by with their dogs will stop and come over and say, that smells so incredible. What is that? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's that you're growing or cutting something and it reminds you of something from your past. And that so it's very powerful, all of these pieces of the garden and how they add so much um, meaning to our lives. Yeah. Walk us through, because there is this multi-sensory process you go through when you first start in a space, whether it's maybe at a school or, or with a new client. Um, and you describe it in the book really beautifully, but there is this process you go through in order to kind of introduce yourself to the people and the place and then determine where and what kind of garden this is going to be. Will you walk us through that process if, you know, I'm sure it's different in every space, but walk us through the the general steps you go through um, because they're related to this idea of listening and looking and smelling and tasting. Well, I, I think the first thing I want to say is that I go to somebody's home for the first time and they sometimes have an idea about where they want the garden. Mm -hmm. And they'll lead me over and say, this is where the garden should go. And I'll look around and notice that there's no sun or it's in a corner where it seems like it would be very susceptible to the wildlife coming out of the shrubs or trees or bushes. And so the first thing I do is really talk with my client about finding the place where it's the most viable as far as sunlight goes, because, you know, we all think, oh, we should all know this. It needs sun. But we, a lot of us have been disconnected for so long from nature's process that we just, we need a refresher course. So I first try to help people to understand that the sun, the soil, and the water are the three most important things when we decide where the garden's going to go. Mm-hmm. And the sun, we can't cheat. 
you know, we can enhance the soil, we can enrich it with compost and organic fertilizers, but the sun, we can't cheat that. So first we talk about that we need the sun. And then we generally find a place that feels like it will work for the lifestyle of my client as well, because that's important. You know, if you have small children and there's one grassy area and that's where all the sun is and you put the vegetable garden and use all of the grass, I mean, that's not, you want to probably try to find a good balance. So I really try to think about what are the needs of this family or this person? How is this going to enhance their life and enrich their life? And then when we decide on the spot for all of those reasons, I really take a good look around. I really want to understand the place. And I do, I talk about in the book how I look up. I need to see what trees are here, what's going to pose a possible challenge or what feels right. There's also a feeling that you just have sometimes, like maybe there are two areas the garden could be, but there is kind of a knowing. I think if you sit down in a spot, you get a sense of this is where the garden wants to be. Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain it articulately because it's more of a feeling. Yeah. But I t- learned to trust that feeling. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it work. Like I feel like the land knows where it wants to grow food sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you describe this really beautifully in the book where where you're walking around with the two chefs and you are, you know, they're trying to decide where it can go and there's obstacles in a lot of the places and finally you find this sort of far farther away from the house than normal place and it becomes what you call a destination garden and you just sit you sit on the soil for a while and you kind of listen to it and then you pick up a hand of the of a handful of the soil and and it's dry but you kind of you think about it and you feel it and then you take it home and and this whole listening and feeling and smelling and there's something that's really it was really powerful in in the book reading about this process and that intuitive sense we get from the land is is definitely a very real thing. And to see you teaching other people that felt like just a wonderful gift to be reading about. I'm so glad that um, you took that away with you because it is this, when I say it's so intimate and so personal, it is, it's really, it, it's also about trusting ourselves. Mm-hmm you know, that we have the tools, we know it needs the sun and the soil, and and we know it needs those things. And that particular garden, we built, we did not do raised beds. So I knew it was going in that soil. Right. And I knew that I had to really tend and care for that soil and understand that soil. But I did feel like it would be, it felt like the right place for their garden. And, you know, each of us have different journeys, different challenges, all of these um, things that come up in life. But something from personal, from my own, is learning to trust my instincts and trust myself. And that process that you just talked about and in gardening, I feel that it has helped me on that journey to just, if I really tune into the place, into the nature and the trees and the soil and the sky and all of those things... And I can really hear 
what wants to be there and trust myself in that way. Mm-hmm. And that experience of doing this for all of these years and learning to trust myself more and more in that feeling we all get, um, it's really helped me to become fuller on my own journey in life. Yeah. And I think that's what each of us will have a different piece that we bring to it or that we want to take from our experience in gardening. Yeah. But it teaches us so much about the larger world and the very personal journey we're all in. As we enter summer for real, we're dishing up a conversation on the joys of the edible garden with Lori Kranz of Edible Gardens LA. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, there are two things I'm really taking away from the conversation with Lori. The first being her statement, you can't cheat the sun. If you want vegetables, they need sun, a lot of sun, six to eight hours of it a day in the height of the growing season for heat-loving summer crops like peppers, melons, cucumbers, tomatoes, basil. Knowing where your sun is and for how long and for how intensely, this is something we don't always have a clear understanding of when we work outside the home. It really pays off as a gardener to spend a day in each season charting the sun, its patterns, its placement, its way of moving over each space of our garden. This kind of working knowledge goes a long way to really incorporating us with our gardens and how they make their lives. The second thing I'm taking away is a garden needs to work for your lifestyle to maximize your success with it and the value you glean from it for food and for well-being. Keep this in mind as you plan and execute your own gardens or garden renovations. Make them easy on yourself. These things are a gift. They should be enjoyed. Now, back to our conversation with Lori Kranz, builder of Edible Gardens LA and author of A Garden Can Be Anywhere. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. When we left our conversation with Lori, she was describing the incredible range of gardens that she has worked in and how they are each unique and different. In this next segment, Lori talks about how this diversity of gardens interrelates to the idea of a land ethic, responsibility to place, and being in relationship with our gardens as part of a larger whole. It was interesting to hear your your childhood story about being out in the woods and then there was this sort of line between the lawn and the woods and, and where you guys determined to, to put your vegetable patch. And some some somewhere later in the book, you bring up the fact that you and your family are have been in the habit of reading and returning to uh, Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac and his beautiful establishment of this idea called the land ethic, which harkens back to, you know, cultures ancient and modern in, you know, land-based communities where there is this reciprocity between us and land and natural processes. And 
One of the questions that came up for me in that chapter about the two chefs and creating the garden out of what was uh, sort of native chaparral is how do you balance, because clearly these are both important elements to you, and how to marry them and interface beautifully and kindly with the the, the wild and the cultivated how do you strike that balance in, in any of your gardens? And have you ever had an experience where you said, that is too sort of pristine and a native area. I think we need to move move the garden over here. Like, how, how do you balance that, Lori? I have moved. I have absolutely said we should not put the garden there many times. Yeah. I've had requests from people I, I was meeting with who wanted me to build um, gardens for them that would disturb well-established, beautiful old trees. I just have to turn those. I first try to persuade people that that's not the way in which I feel comfortable working, nor do I feel that that, um, that anyone should disturb that land. And, um, and if they don't see that, they can find another place. I can't take those jobs on because my real, I, I mentioned it in the book too, but first do no harm. Like yeah. that's how I garden. First do no harm in everything. And so for me, I find that most of the time putting in a vegetable garden, an edible landscape, all of these elements enhance the land. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like it, it shape shifts the land in such a positive way. It's feeding the earth and feeding us. And that's the balance I'm looking for. I will tell you that I am on a personal crusade at this point to have everybody stop using rodenticides because in my first do no harm, I see that as being, we're so afraid of, of, oh my gosh, there are rats, there are mice, there are, but everything is important for the whole. And so I build the garden houses, which, you know, we put blueprints in the book so anyone can build one. Um, And because they just keep the critters out, they don't harm the critters. They don't, we were at inner, they let the bees in through the screens, the butterflies. I want every garden interaction to be a positive one with our natural surroundings. Right. And so I do feel most of the time the things we do really enhance the earth as far as adding vegetables and adding um, fruit trees and all those things. But where we fail and we're failing terribly is using poisons because we're disturbing the entire food chain. We're killing a few rats and we're and we're killing their predators because then the owls eat the mice or the rat that has had the poison and then they die and we're creating an extraordinary imbalance. Yeah. So that's my real passion point to which I want, I had to speak to. Um, I really, I so appreciate that. And it's interesting because um, you are of course a, a dedicated and, longtime organic gardener and but the rodenticides is 
is kind of a, a tangential relationship, but it impacts everything. And it came up in uh, a conversation I had with the gardeners at the Nature Gardens there in L.A. at the Natural History Museum. And that was one of their pleas as well because it it's just – you know, in urban and suburban areas, it seems to be a default practice, and it is a tragic. It is a tragic, uh, rippling effect. The so I, I really appreciate that, and you you reference in that answer your garden houses, and it's one of your your sort of signature elements in your urban and suburban gardens. Um, I'd love for you to describe them a little a little bit specifically because they can be very elegant and they can be very simple. Uh, but but describe them for for listeners who might not be aware of what they are. Sure. So a garden house, you think greenhouse, but instead of glass, there are screens, and the screens are large enough to let in pollinators, mm-hmm. but small enough that cr- any other critters can't get in. Yeah. So and um, yeah, sorry, one question ahead. I had is um, like, so do butter are butterflies able to get in and or I'm guessing hummingbirds not, but bees and flies and all the other nice creatures can. Yes, butterflies make it in. Um, sometimes they enter in a caterpillar form and then they but they are there are butterflies and there are there are plenty of bees. Yeah. Um, so the bees, you know, I am uh, really strong believer that everyone should plant African basil in their gardens, Mm -hmm. whether they're in a garden house or outside of a garden house, because they really attract the bees, support the bee colonies. And um, so I always plant African basil and I put plenty in a garden house and the bees are in and out of that garden house all day long. Yeah. Describe like the specifics of one of your garden houses in terms of the the height, the trusses, the screening, the how do you secure them in the ground? I know it's all in the book, but just so people get a sense of them, because they are actually lovely. So a garden house, um, you really want the height to have a um, organic relationship to its surroundings. So in an area with very tall trees, and maybe a taller house, you can build the garden house nine feet tall. But in a um, setting that the trees are not as mature, you don't want the garden house to stand out as the biggest thing on the property. So I tend to keep those at eight feet high. Mm-hmm. Um, it's better to err on the side of a little shorter then go too tall with them. Mm-hmm. Just so aesthetically, it feels like it's meant to be in the space. Okay. And then they have a wood frame and um, the screens are all the way around it, just as you would see in a greenhouse. Um, there's a great, you can do a double opening door or just a single door that opens. Mm-hmm. And inside the garden house, you will find raised beds. And those are really designed to maximize the growing area. And you just want to be mindful that you're going to need room to walk between each of the beds and um, that plants are going to grow and go wild and kind of burst out of the beds at times. So you want to leave yourself 
at least two feet, if not more, to travel in between the beds you build. And it's also nice to leave yourself a few feet at the entry point after you enter. I like putting a table and a couple chairs in there so you can bring in your coffee or your lunch or um, whatever you would like and spend some time sitting inside the garden house in your garden. Yeah. And you don't always use these. So it was interesting to go through the book and the website and see that in some cases you have raised beds and in some cases you have gardens straight in the ground. And in other cases, you have these garden houses and sometimes they're quite expansive and sometimes they're a little bit more petite. As you mentioned, they always have a a roof so that it is screened all the way around. And while there's part of me that, you know, doesn't want to be in constant conflict with the native world around me, the house strikes me as the perfect balance. It means you you aren't, you know, you don't need an entire perimeter fence for deer. You're not individually bagging fruit to protect it so that not all your fruit is taken by birds. You can under... Uh, underlay your raised beds with wire mesh so that you're protected from gophers. Is there so, – so this struck me as just like a very nonviolent way to protect your vegetable garden and still have a relationship with the wildlife around you um, in, a, in a non-combative way. Yeah, it's gentle and it's aesthetically so pleasing. Mm-hmm. So I have people who don't even need these who – call me and say, please, will you build one? <laughs> because we just love, they feel that it will enhance yeah. their home, and their yard. There's um, that like elegance of a greenhouse to them, as you, you suggested. Yes, earlier. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think that as long as it makes sense on your property, any of us can put one up. It's also, but you are still interacting with everything around you. You're not walled off from it. You can mm-hmm. hear every sound. You can smell everything. You can see everything. It's There are bees buzzing by. It's, it's really, um, I think, the kindest way. Mm-hmm. If you do have a huge problem with deer or rodents or squirrel, whatever it is, yeah. it, it really, um, and you get an abundance of food. You mm-hmm. still get aphids. You still have to deal with the ordinary um, garden kinds of creatures mm-hmm. as far as insects and such. But that's fine. That's part of the lessons we learn every time is, okay, how do we how do we handle that in an organic way that doesn't harm anything? Right. So the garden house just provides um, safety, I would say, for the vegetables so that they can grow and end up in your kitchen and on your plate and bursting out of your harvest basket. Do you, are the are the corners footed in concrete or how are they secured to the ground, Lori? You know, they are, we, they are not, we don't use concrete unless it's not a um, unless there's exceptional situation okay. for it, um, but we secure them. They are posted into the ground, and um, there are way more details on this. Yes, in, in the book. In the, the book, the, yeah. Okay, and so let's let's get to the book a little bit. I mean, we've talked around it, and so I think the the general idea of it is is fairly obvious. 
what made you decide to do a book? And and you worked on this book with your husband, Dean, and you uh, walk through a lot of the why and the how and then the how-to for people in terms of evaluating their soil, evaluating their water, um, a, you know, the the blueprints for the garden houses and trying to determine if you need one um, or want one. Why did you decide in this day and age where we have more garden books than we sometimes know what to do with, what what made you say now's the time and this I'm I'm going to write this book about my work and my process? I had been doing it for many years, um, building gardens mm-hmm. for schools and for families and institutions and individuals, and I felt that that was my experience was unique to a certain extent in that I'm in so many different gardens in so many different terrains for many years. And I felt that I could understand, um, I had an understanding of certain things that occurred in various places and that that would be a good um, basis for a book to add to the conversation and the experience of gardening. And I also, Dean, my husband, Dean Kuypers, is a writer, a journalist, and we had been talking about, he said, had said to me, I think it's time for you to start writing about your experiences in these gardens, mm-hmm. and they're all so unique and personal, and surely within your stories that you come home with every day, and at the dinner table, I always have a story from the garden. He said, I think those stories will help other people to find their way to gardening, and around that time, I got a phone call from Kitty Cowles, who is a literary agent, and she said, I've been following your work, and I think it's time for you to write a book. Yeah. And so we embarked on the journey, and I'm so happy we did. It was really the longest pregnancy I've ever known. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> but, but And I will say that the day that our our book was published. We were so lucky. Suzanne Goen and Carolyn Stein, who Suzanne Goen, the chef, um, who wrote the foreword in the book, and her um, business partner Carolyn Stein, who have AOC and Tavern and Luke, all these beautiful restaurants in LA. They threw us a magnificent party with. Suzanne cooked a five course dinner from that she was inspired by from reading the book. Um, so when I mention dishes that I make from the garden and how I just throw the odds and ends together, she created something called Lori's Supper. Mm. And I was so elated and it was a magical night and it was packed with friends and people we didn't know and people who would say, we drove two hours to come and meet you. And I couldn't believe it. And I was so touched. And then at 10 o'clock that night, I came down with a fever. I was so sick. And Dean had to whisk me out and I ended up in bed for four days. Never happens to me, but I feel that I had poured everything into this book and Dean and I mean, we worked so hard for so long and just the joy that it was released and also like the labor. Yes. I think it just hit me all at once. Wow. And then happily, I quickly recovered and we we went on to 
you know, um, travel and do lots of fun talks and workshops so, and signings for the book. Yeah. So, so given the, um, the length of the pregnancy, a four day postpartum doesn't seem too bad, right? Right. 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 <laughs> now, Zach, I like the way you put that. Yes. <laughs> so I want to, I want to end up, we're coming very close to the end of our time. And I, I really want to circle back to this musical thread because for me, somehow it's really resonant. You have a uh, a kind of a partner um, in music who you work with in your um, in your gardens on your website, and you set up musical performances, maybe in gardens, and walk us through the relationship between music and how how it affects us and how that relates to this gardening impulse in your life? Because so, somehow I think this is related to how you measure success, Lori. Well, for me, gardens and music are both such pleasurable experiences. I love making music and I love being in the garden. And they both bring me joy I will say that um, they both require a lot of attention and a lot of both physical and um, emotional work, Mm -hmm. but the rewards are great. And when I started building the gardens, I was asked by Ann Litt, who Mm -hmm. is a DJ here at KCRW, um, and I was asked to help her with her garden and we had not met, but she had played my band's music on her show over the years. And I went and the two of us ended up digging up her hillside, doing a double dig in hard soil. It was nobody helped us. It was the two of us side by side digging up that Canyon soil and somewhere along the way, at some point during those days, it grew late. It was maybe five thirty-six, And she said, do you want a martini? I said, sure. So she brought martinis down to the garden and we sipped and talked and we'd been talking. And we came up with this idea that we both love gardening and we love music so much. Wouldn't it be great to marry the two? And through that and subsequent talks, we came up with this idea to do something called music in the garden. And we knew right from the start that we wanted people to have access to it. So we wanted to have unbelievable musicians in beautiful gardens and other places, some private, some public, but that it couldn't be a ticket is $700 because that just felt so um, against what a garden and music should really be. So we decided that the price of admission was going to be a bag of food from your own garden or from your local farmer's market, which would be donated the next day to Project Angel Food or local soup kitchens. Or you could donate money of any amount and the artist performing would choose um, a charity that they felt they wanted the money to go to. And it didn't matter if you gave $5 or $5,000. Anything was fine. And it 
it's become a huge success. Um, so Moby played our first show. Joseph <laughs> Arthur played another show. And then the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles called us and said, will you do one here? And we did one for thousands of people with Dexter Story and Wondum. Wow. It was so fantastic. So it's really grown and we have more concerts we're planning now. And and I think we both feel really excited and proud of this project because it's um, it's giving money to important causes and it's helping people to grow food, build community and see the importance in the relationship between growing your own food and and creating community and helping a wider circle. And so that's really what our hope was with that and and continues to be. You have a quote in the book that says, it's not an exaggeration to say a garden is a way to grow a family. And I just see that in all aspects of what you do, Lori. And I really thank you for being a guest on the program today. Thank you so much. Really so honored to be here with you. Lori Kranz is the creator of Edible Gardens LA and author of the new book, A Garden Can Be Anywhere, out now from Abrams Press. Known in her wider circle as Gardening Lori, Lori's work is part garden design, part school gardening, part gardening coach and mentor, and all gardening evangelist and advocate. Join us again next week as we go even more fully into the idea of a reciprocity-based land ethic when, on the 4th of July, we speak with botanist, mother, teacher, and indigenous plantswoman Robin Wall Kimmerer, exploring the heart of what it means to be a citizen of this world. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from Lori's beautiful work and book, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Our producer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX public radio exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.